Hey Siri. How many days has it been since August 20th, 2017? It was 176 days ago. Hey Siri. Cue the intro. Now, now shall I tell, tell of things, things that change? New being, new being out of old. Since, Since you, you oh, gods, oh, gods, oh gods, created mutable, created mutable arts, created mutable arts and gifts. Give me the voice. The voice. Give me the voice. The voice to tell the shifting, shifting, the shifting story of the world. He hears them before he sees them. Coming through the trees, crying out like wild animals, feet drumming on the ground in a frenzied dance, hands pounding on the trunks of trees, pounding the stones. He hears it all like thunder before the storm. He hears them. He knows them. He knows who they are and he knows what they want. He knows their God. He knows what they can do, what they're capable of, he knows, but he does not hide. He does not run. These are his fields, his forests. He has been here his whole life. He has tamed these places with his song. This is his place, calm and serene and secure. He will not run. He will not run because he is Orpheus, the son of Apollo. Orpheus the Argonaut, Orpheus the greatest living musician in the world. Orpheus who tamed the underworld itself with his song and made even the Furies weep. He is Orpheus. He will not run. As the son of Apollo and the muse Calliope, Orpheus inherited an unparalleled talent for music in time becoming the greatest musician in the land and, eventually, the world. It was, perhaps, this fame which got him a seat on the Argos, accompanying the hero Jason on his many adventures and, at times, even using his musical skills to get his fellow sailors out of a nasty scrape or two along the way. And then, his adventures over. Orpheus returned home to even more accolades and fame than he'd had before he left on the journey. And, in time, Orpheus met a nice girl and they settled down together. But tragedy struck. His wife died on their wedding day, no less. Sometimes fate just deals you a bad hand. However lucky you might be, however lucky you are, you should never take it for granted. And Orpheus had been very lucky indeed. But when you're the son of a god, 
the rules don't always apply. And what good is coming from a prominent family if you can't rely on getting special treatment when times are tough? So, after his wife died, Orpheus made his way to the land of the dead, the realm ruled by his great-uncle Hades. Liar in hand, he made his case before the throne. He didn't whine. He didn't weep. He didn't make a sacrifice or file his request in triplicate. No, he's Orpheus. So he sings. He sings. It's what he does. It's who he is. It's all he is. So he sings. And what a song. It brings the underworld to a standstill. Everything and everyone stops what they're doing to listen. Even the dead cease their whispering. Even the furies, the scourge of fate, even they weep. Even Hades, even he notices. He and his wife Persephone and, moved, they give in to Orpheus's request and agree to restore his poor doomed wife. Through the throng of the gathering dead she comes, still wrapped in her burial shroud, pale and insubstantial as a shadow, limping still from the wound in her heel where the serpent struck on her wedding day. But before the lovers can make their escape to the world above, Hades lays down one condition on her return. They are free to go, but they must abide by one rule, on the journey back to the brighter lands above, Orpheus and his wife may not speak. They may not touch. She must follow her husband along the silent path, and he may not even look back. He must not let his gaze fall upon his wife while yet they remain in the realm of Hades. He will lead. She will follow. Forbidden to speak or touch during the long, slow climb, he will, in effect, be all alone. A small price to pay to regain a lost love, no? We don't know how long it took or how far they had to walk in the dark, their footing unsteady and the silence maddening. With every step, Orpheus gets closer to the reunion he craves. And yet, with every step, he feels his faith fading, uncertainty growing. His faith is failing. Not his faith in Hades, though some have since said so. And certainly not his faith in himself. Orpheus is nothing if not constant in that regard. His resolve is not in question. Just look at all he has done to regain her, to rescue her. He is nothing if not committed to her. But what of she to him? What of her resolve? her faith in him. After all, she'd left him alone before, on their wedding day, off wandering alone. Why? Who or what did she seek out there in the trees alone while her husband played for their guests, unaware? No. No, if she truly loved him, if she was still there, if she could be trusted to keep pace with him, to keep faith with him, no, she was there. No, she was not there.
was she there? And thus on he went, his thoughts wandering even as his feet hunted for purchase there in the dark. And as his mind wandered, full of doubt, more and more with every step, more and more, step by step, just before he reached the end, the light of the living world turning the last few steps on the path ahead to purest gold, only a few more steps in darkness, only a few more steps in silence, only a few more steps alone, only a few more steps. The silence, nothing but the sound of his breath, his feet on the path, only his breath, only his thoughts swarming with worry and doubt now. Was she still there? She must not be there anymore, if she ever had been. No. He must keep walking. He'd come all this way. He was not alone. He was. He'd walked all this way for nothing. Walking alone, all alone, for nothing. And just short of the end, just at the edge of where the path began to lighten, he turned back. He turned just in time to see her melt back into the shadows to hear her whisper farewell as she faded away. As the first light from above touched him, reaching back for her, she was gone. He'd failed her. Again. Yet again. And after that, Orpheus just wandered for a time and a distance. He fled the world, the seat of his fame, retreating to the hills and groves of his youth, retreating back to where he'd grown up, retreating back to where he'd first met his love. He turned his back on the world, and he turned his back on her, turned his back on all women. Though many would have welcomed him to their beds, many burned to have him for their own, but no, no more of that. He turned his back on it all. And he went on, though, not necessarily alone. Fame found him once more, despite himself. A new following gathered around him, though his rock star days were long behind him now. Now they came to him as a teacher, a keeper of secret knowledge and sacred mysteries, He'd crossed the boundary, and he'd come back. There was much he could tell them. And so they came to him for this hidden knowledge, to listen to his teaching and instruction, to eavesdrop on the unknown mysteries of life and death. It must have been a comfort to know that he still had the ability to draw an audience, to capture people's attention, and... In time, he found himself again. That is, he found a new version of himself again. After being shattered by his own failure, reduced to a handful of shards, a jagged jumble of what he had once been, brittle and dangerous, it must have been a relief to know that he could take all those pieces and put himself back together again. In time, he even found love once more, or 
at the very least, a version of it, a love in which he could protect himself from the sorrow and loss that had nearly destroyed him once before. A new love, different, perhaps, a kind of comfort in which he could safely indulge, a kind of love that he could control, one in which he could call the shots, end it himself before it ended him. He could keep control of his fate and not the other way around. But there is no controlling fate. There is no taming it. Fate is unavoidable, persistent, and ever-present, like the beat of a drum, keeping time moment by moment through the days and nights of your life. And by the time Orpheus heard those drums, it was too late. They came upon him in a grove, a mob of women given over to the frenzy of their worship and their wine. Dance with us, they demanded of him, but he would not dance. They gathered and fell upon him like a wave, all demands and desires, but he was a rock and would not be moved. So furious they took up rocks and stones to pelt and punish him, to punish his rejection of them, his rejection of their worship, his rejection of their God. But he was not defenseless. He still had a gift that had stayed with him all this time, despite his failures and reinvention, the one thing that had seen him through when all else had failed and fallen away. He still had his song. His song was his weapon and his shield against the attacks of the women. He sang so sweetly that even the stones were softened and would not harm him. In their rage, the women tore branches and boughs from the trees around them to bludgeon him to death, but again his song overcame their weapons, their clubs refusing to strike the source of such sweet music. The women gathered and attacked again, this time with farming tools stolen from workers in a nearby field. Armed with the implements of life and death, these plows and scythes, the women fell once again upon the son of Apollo with unforgiving, deaf iron, iron that proved to be his harshest critic, cutting and cruel. And so Orpheus was separated from himself at every point, until all that remained was a broken lyre and a bloody jumble that might once have been something more than a man. The death of Orpheus is a cruel and brutal end to one of the most tragic stories in all of mythology. And, as with other aspects of his story, Orpheus's death raises more questions than it answers. It is, at its most basic level, a brutal murder. A man, torn to pieces in the woods by a raving pack of... Well, what were they exactly, these women? Who were they? so wild with worship and wine. The Maenads were the female followers of Dionysus and the most significant and active participants in that god's worship. 
Their name quite literally means the raving ones, a label they earned for their ecstatic frenzy brought on by the ritualistic consumption of wine and their rhythmic dancing. They quite literally became possessed by a wild frenzy and trance-like were given over to the full force of their physical natures, a mania of consumption that was violent and sexual and ravenous. Any animal that crossed their path was torn to shreds, a sacrificial ritual that was known as sparagamos. And after the ritual, the sacrament homophagia, in which the victim's remains are consumed by the maenad. The Romans called them the basarids, the bacchae, or the bacante, the female followers of Bacchus, the Roman name for Dionysus, after the Roman belief that the god wore a basaris or a fox skin. Presumably his followers followed suit. The concept of these women, who had given themselves over to the ecstatic frenzy, pleasure, and worship of this wild god of the woods, each clothed in fox skins, dancing and attacking by night and day, well, there is much that resonates in the broader world of folklore, particularly in the myths of the werewolf, but I digress. The maenads, or Bacante, when overtaken by the frenzy of their worship, were a dangerous force, as unstoppable as a berserker army. One gets the impression from the ancient texts that communities viewed these women like a particularly dangerous weather system, something to prepare for, to anticipate, and to defend against. And all of this, this frenzy and the danger, this was all part of their worship of their god, Dionysus, Bacchus. Dionysus is the Greek god of wine, also the god of winemaking and wine harvesting and, well, basically anything associated with wine. He's the god of other things too, but wine is right up there at the top of the list. Dionysus is considered to be one of the younger gods, a latecomer to the Olympian pantheon. Some myths claim he is the son of Zeus and Persephone, a claim that, as you may recall, originated in the Orphic cult and mystery religion. Other versions of Dionysus' origin state that he was the son of Zeus, born of a mortal woman named Semele. It is said that Semele was a priestess of Zeus and that she caught his attention after a ritual sacrifice of a bull. While Semele was bathing in a river to cleanse herself of the blood after the sacrifice, as the story goes, Zeus happened to be flying over in the guise of an eagle and, well, apparently, he liked what he saw. Now, unlike other dalliances that Zeus was known to indulge in, Semele turned out to be something more than a mere one-night stand. The stories say that the god visited Semele often and even fell in love with her. And soon enough, she was with child. And, because it always happens this way, Hera, the wife of Zeus and queen of Olympus, was filled with fury yet again over another of her husband's many infidelities. 
and so Hera sought to punish Semele for her transgression. We've talked about this before, how Hera rarely punishes Zeus for his infidelity, choosing instead to focus her rage on the relatively, comparatively innocent mortal who has been understandably taken in by the god's power and seduced. And no, it doesn't seem fair. But, taking the form of an old crone, Hera befriended Semele. The young woman was probably grateful for the companionship in her delicate time, and she confessed unknowingly to Hera that Zeus was her child's father. The crone expressed some degree of understandable doubt that Zeus would dally in such a fashion with a mortal girl. But Semele stood by her claims, though in her heart the seed of doubt had been sown, planted by the expert hand of Hera. From then on, it was only a matter of time. Semele begged Zeus to reveal himself to her, to show her who he truly was, to confirm her love was real and not a folly. She begged him, Show yourself to me that I might know you for who you truly are. It's a common theme across many religions that to look upon a god in their true form means death. As Yahweh says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. There is a school of thought born out of the ancient Greek beliefs that the gods are not the gods, not entirely, but rather the gods are shells or masks or containers for the gods, that the beings which we recognize as gods are simply convenient forms that the larger, more inexplicable beings have taken on in order to make themselves known and recognizable to us. This concept shows up in religions all around the world, and, more often than not, there are disastrous results when humanity peeks behind the mask of God. In Zeus's case, apparently, this meant being exposed to his full, unshielded power. See, to prove to his mortal lover who he really was, Zeus shed all of his masks and, revealed, stood before her in all his glory and power, blasting simile to ash. From those ashes, Zeus saved or salvaged, if you prefer, the unborn child, and he took that still gestating infant and sewed it into his own thigh. Eventually, in time, Dionysus was born. As Athena sprang forth from the forehead of Zeus as the fully formed representation and embodiment of his divine wisdom, so too Dionysus emerged from his father's thigh, though perhaps embodying more carnal virtues. Hang on, let's back up a bit. There's a little bit more to explore here in the origins of this god. Even in the complex mythologies of the past, the stories of Dionysus and his birth are particularly complex and muddy. His parentage is unclear. 
though Zeus is always the father. His purported mothers include Simile, Persephone, and even Demeter, though, as we have discussed before, there is some degree of syncretism with those two last goddesses, where they might have at one time been merged in the ancient past, or perhaps separated their stories after the fact. And let's not forget that, for sure, Hera was once an underworld goddess on par with and possibly just another aspect of Persephone, and that Zeus was sometimes equated with Hades as though the land of the underworld was just one of the many responsibilities or domains of the father of the gods. Complex and muddy, as I said. Now, remember from our last episode... In the Zeus and Persephone lineage, the one apparently favored by the followers of the Orphic mystery cult, Dionysus was murdered, dismembered, and eaten by the Titans at Hera's urging. And then Zeus blasted them to ash. Some say that the heart of Dionysus was saved before it could be eaten by the Titans. They say that Zeus gave the heart to poor Simile to eat, and thus the child was reborn again out of his mother's flesh. Others write that Athena, or Demeter, or Rhea, the titaness and mother of Zeus, one of them rescued the heart of Dionysus and kept it safe until Zeus sewed it up into his thigh. Now, in many parts of the ancient world, the thigh did not mean the upper portion of the leg as we would understand it today. Now, in those times, saying the thigh was something of a euphemism, and the meaning would have been closer to loins or even groin. So it's not too much of a stretch, if you'll pardon the expression, to assume that Zeus did not sow Dionysus or his heart into his leg, but rather into another spot, specifically his testicles. We know from other sources, including the Old Testament book of Genesis, that one would swear an oath by placing one's hands on one's testicles. Literally, this is where we get the word testify from. If Athena's gestation within the head of her father led to her association with reason, strategy, and wisdom, essentially, she's the goddess of using your head, then Dionysus' gestation in the ball sack of Zeus? Well, it's no surprise that Dionysus would become, among other things, a fertility god whose worship drove his followers into religious and spiritual ecstasy. And his origins also might explain how that ecstasy led to apparently murderous frenzy. The word ecstasy comes to us from Greek, by way of Latin and later French. The word itself meant literally to be displaced, to be removed. So it was associated with being out of your mind. One of the key characteristics of ecstatic religious experience is precisely that, being completely unaware of where you are, of how much time is passing, of even who you are. There are many things that can induce this kind of experience. For example, certain substances. 
wine, for instance. The subject of religious ecstatic experience is a fascinating and honestly incredibly time-consuming area of study, more time than we have right now, but it really does deserve an episode all its own. Suffice it to say that the core characteristics of ecstatic religious experience are ritual music, with a strong emphasis on singing and drumming in particular. And with the music comes ritual movement or dancing. And all of this is supported, if not instigated, by the ingestion of certain sacramental ritualistic substances, anything from psychedelic mushrooms to wine. The latter, of course, being the ritual substance of choice for the followers of Dionysus. It isn't perhaps too much of a stretch to say that Dionysus is a god of going beyond the boundaries of what is comfortable, fashionable, conventional, or controlled, beyond the boundaries of one's mind. Put it another way, Dionysus represents the chaotic, wild abandon of someone beyond the boundaries of conventional society or reason. In this, for some, He is the antithesis, the flip side to the enlightened, reasoned, and under-control Apollo. Dionysus is the life of the party, quite literally, constantly accompanied by a procession of women driven wild by wine, their own reckless ritual abandoned, and presumably the wild satyrs who also accompany the god with their hairy loins, shall we say, in full goatish glory, it is such a procession, this time made up of the women, the maenads, the wild women of the forest, it was they, in procession, who found Orpheus there in his little grove in the woods. It's unclear why the maenads attacked Orpheus that day in the forest. There need not be a reason for their actions. They were the Bacante, the Maidads. That was reason enough. Much like a pack of wolves might set upon a man alone in the woods, so too the Maidads. Yet some ancient writers and scholars do ascribe a motive to the attack. But of course, not everyone is in agreement. For some, it was an attack born out of rivalry, a gang war, if you will. There was the idea that they were the servants of Dionysus and he was the son of Apollo. Others say it was more personal in nature. Orpheus had many followers, and over time that community became a mystery cult with their own secret practices and worship. Not only was admittance to the cult limited, it was also exclusive. Women were not permitted to join and some say this angered the Maenads, the ones who followed that boundary breaker, who saw their exclusion as an insult not only to themselves, but an insult to their god as well. There are some who say it was a religious matter, that Orpheus, the son of Apollo, had assumed the role of priest and was bringing his father's orderly control to bear on the worship of Dionysus, He had come to contain the wild chaos of the woods and, formalizing it, containing it, bound it together into a new religion, 
like a rival gang taking over another's territory, the Orphics and their leader had moved in, bringing competition to the religion and the region. Others say that this exclusion of women in the Orphic cult was merely an extension of Orpheus's own rejection of the companionship of women, and so his followers' celibacy was an extension of that. And it was these practices, along with their implied disparagement of women, it was these things that offended the free-spirited and, one assumes, free-loving maenads. So when they came upon Orpheus in the woods and he refused to take parts in their rituals, in their orgy, well, they were angry. But in the end, what does it matter? What does it matter what the reason was? whether it was rivalry or jealousy or some combination of all of these things. Because whether they had a reason to or not, the Maenads fell upon Orpheus and they tore him to pieces. Complex and muddy though this story may be, there are certain themes that emerge. One in particular is that of dismemberment. In the ancient world, the desecration of a corpse was one of the worst sins imaginable, a surefire way to bring down the rapid and unmerciful wrath of the gods. We've talked about this before, I believe, but it bears repeating. In the ancient world, the desecration of a dead body was considered a massive transgression, a sin of unforgivable proportions, to murder was one thing, but then to dismember or abuse a corpse? That was to compound the sin to the point where even the gods would take notice. We see this play out in stories beyond that of Orpheus. In Egypt, we see Osiris dismembered and the pieces scattered for Isis to find in a grisly scavenger hunt. And then there's Jesus, whose own wounds on the cross, some believe, symbolically correspond to those of Orpheus. And then we have Dionysus, with his dismemberment by the Titans. I've never really found a clear explanation for why this prohibition was so strong in the ancient world. Why was it so important that a body not be desecrated? Apart from just being good manners, of course. Why would this sin be so anathema to the gods and deserving of such rapid punishment? I don't necessarily know the answer, but the ancient texts are clear that the desecration of the dead is a grievous sin. Which backs up what my resident expert on ancient knowledge, my wife, told me when I asked her about this prohibition against the desecration of the dead. It's my understanding that the source of this was rooted in ancient ideals of form and the striving for perfection. This Greek concept that the human form was, in part, derived from the ideal forms of the gods, or, as appropriated by the Judeo-Christian beliefs, we are made in his image. So to corrupt or profane the human form was the same as, by extension, profaning the gods themselves. It was a kind of reverse transubstantiation. 
And, obviously, performing this kind of depravity on the son of Apollo was even more likely to invite punishment. And make no mistake, there was punishment. After they killed Orpheus and dismembered his body, the Maenads amused themselves with the pieces. Some scholars tell us that they had sport with them, perhaps in every sense of the word. If he would not join their orgy in life, then in death he could not resist them anymore. Afterwards, they took the pieces, including his head, and they flung them into the river Hebrus. According to some authors, all of nature felt the death of Orpheus. The stones and trees and birds all cried out. The rivers and streams all overflowed their banks, swollen by the tears of the naiads and dryads. Other writers say that when the maenads went to the river to wash away the blood of Orpheus, the waters sank away into the earth, leaving the mad women of Dionysus standing on a dry shore, still stained with their sins. And whatever rivalries might have existed between Dionysus and Apollo or their acolytes, the wine god saw the wickedness of his followers and he meted out a swift and brutal punishment. After the Maenads made their way through the forest, still dripping with the blood of Orpheus, still presumably caught up in their frenzy, they found their feet suddenly fixed to the path they could not move, could not take another step. They called out to each other in horror, struggling against the sudden force that held them there in place, their horror rising as their lower limbs thickened, their toes digging into the earth like roots, spreading out even as their hands upraised to the gods for help or maybe for mercy. They waved and spread above them, their arms twisting and stiffening into the branches of trees, their fingers spreading out and spreading leaves, even as their faces roughened, covered with bark to mask their shameful visages. In short, they were transformed into trees. And so was the death of Orpheus avenged. But that's not where the story ends. Some say that Orpheus's head was borne away by the river until at last it washed ashore on the island of Lesbos. It's difficult not to impose a modern irony here, that this man, this demigod who had forsaken all female companionship, that his dismembered head would wash up on an island of women. That's an irony worthy of Rod Serling at his best. But other authors tell us that Orpheus's soul went on and traversed the boundary of Hades' kingdom once again, this time in spirit only, having left his broken body far behind. But I'm getting ahead of myself, no pun intended. Back to Lesbos. It's said that the head of Orpheus became an oracle there on the island, set up in a temple where some say he became the most insightful and accurate oracle in the world. So much so was his power that Apollo came to the island to silence the prophecies of his son once and for all. 
Because the head of Orpheus had grown so popular, more popular and more reliable than even Apollo's own oracle in Delphi. It's another common theme, competition between the gods. Now, it's unclear as to whether or not the head of Orpheus still contained the soul or consciousness of the poet, or if he had long since departed for the underworld. And if he had, then what was the force powering this new oracle on Lesbos, this force that Apollo felt compelled to shut down? As I said, it's unclear. And it's also unclear how exactly Apollo silenced the head of Orpheus. One can only assume it wasn't pleasant. But however it happened, whenever it happened, Orpheus was, at last, dead. As I said, after he dies, we're told that Orpheus's soul finds its way to the underworld yet again, where he is reunited with his lost love, Eurydice. None of the authors paint that scene in bright tones. It is, at best, a bittersweet reunion, and perhaps more bitter than sweet. Some say Eurydice guides her husband to the underworld, that she leads him on, he following behind her in a solemn reversal of their first ill-fated journey. And then they are reunited, sadness and death, together at last. I wonder sometimes what Hades and Persephone might have thought, seeing the doomed couple reunited. Neither seems to be the I-told-you-so type, but you never know. And what of Orpheus? What was going through his head as he made his way step by step back down into the realm of Hades? Was he ashamed? Embarrassed? Had he learned something during his time in the wilderness? Had he finally found humility? Did his sojourn as the Oracle of Lesbos give him perspective? Did he finally learn to accept his fate, whether he liked it or not? Some say he drank from the river Leith, letting it all go. His fame, his sorrow, his privilege and power. Drinking it all away, finally and at last. It's like the lady said. That river out there, it's called Leith, and some people say that when the dead finally make their way here, they're given three sips from a silver cup full of water drawn from the river. The first sip rinses the taste of words from their mouths so they'll be quiet. The second sip soaks their breath and weighs it down. And the third sip it drowns your heart and washes away everything from your life that you ever loved or cared for. Some say that Eurydice guided her husband to the underworld, 
that she led him on, following behind in a solemn reversal of their first ill-fated journey. And then they were reunited, sadness and death, together at last, a double destruction. Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. So, now you know who to blame. The opening music in this episode is by percussionist Robin Adnan Anders, and the closing music is by The 10,000 Things. All contents of this show, unless otherwise noted, are copyright T.M. Camp and may not be used, distributed, copied, or distributed, because I guess now that's a word, without his express written permission. Failure to comply is a violation of international copyright law, and honestly, it's also kind of a dick move. Visit us online at findyourgods.com or on facebook.com slash findyourgods or twitter.com slash findyourgods, or findyourgods.tumblr.com, or instagram.com slash findyourgods, or pinterest.com slash findyourgods, or we're also on SoundCloud and iTunes and all sorts of other places that only exist in the digital world and fail to fulfill our material needs for love, compassion, and companionship in these dark and troubled times. And yeah, I said, I'm I'm sorry. I'm not perfect. God. <laughs>